Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. This is the last episode in Season 6, and it's been a fantastic season with many, many guests covering a broad range of subjects, different experiences, new faces, old faces, but all contributing to the shared conversation about how we can improve our classroom practice, how we can improve as teachers and give our pupils the best education possible. It really has been a fantastic season and the final episode is going to be an absolute cracker. Now, before we get started, I'd like to ask that if you have a moment, leave a review of the podcast wherever you find, um, you know, wherever you go to listen to these things um, because it helps other teachers other people just like you and me to engage with the podcast for its visibility to increase and so hopefully it only takes two seconds to say you know how much you enjoy the podcast and and sort of share that with others this episode is a little bit different because i give the reins to neil almond and christopher such i do so because they're going to interview someone who they respect idolize admire and I thought that it meant so much to them to have the opportunity that I would give them the reins for the interview this week. And when I listened back to the episode, I really wish I'd been there because it was a fantastic conversation and it is pound for pound one of the best episodes that we have on this podcast. And I'm very sad that I wasn't there, but it gives me great pleasure to introduce Christopher Such, Neil Almond, and most importantly, Professor Kathy Russell. We're joined today by Professor Kathy Russell. It's a real privilege to have you on the podcast. As much as I could um, give no doubt a no doubt very complimentary description of your work and your career and what it means to uh, teachers like me who are interested in literacy research, I think the most sensible thing to do would be to allow you to uh, introduce yourself. So if, if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be a literacy researcher, your career to date and your kind of particular interests in your area of study, that would be fantastic. Great. So thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Chris. It's a real pleasure to talk about reading. So I guess my, well, I'm professor of psychology at Royal Holloway University of London, and my career started in Sydney, Australia, doing a PhD with Max Coulthart, who's one of the great reading scientists. And at that stage, I was really interested in skilled reading. So what, what are the, what's the cognitive machinery that underlies adults' ability to read at speed? You know, and the more I got into this, the more I thought, you know, this is a fascinating problem because we're not born to read. Reading something that we have to learn over about, well, at least 10 years. And yet we do it so fast. You know, we're able to use written language and, and, and transmit, understand information at a speed that would just, just be impossible in spoken language. And this is for a system that we're not born to have. And over the years, I started to ask questions about how that system is learned. Um, so uh, how can learning be optimized through instruction and through experience? And those questions started to take me into 
questions about the nature of the writing system to what it is that's being learned and how general neurobiological constraints on learning um, feed into this acquisition process. And then as I've gotten a bit older, I've become much more interested in translating that research into policies and practices that sort of have implications for how children learn to read so that my, my research can make a difference outside of academic journals. So that's my, that's my career in a nutshell. Thinking about what you said there about the attempt to translate that so it has an impact on schools and the outside world, um, I think you can um, feel particularly pleased with uh, what you have achieved so far in your career because it's certainly, from what I've seen, um, been received in real schools. Yeah, thank you as for your work. From a fan, thank you for your work. Well, thank you. Obviously, uh, reading the whole kind of literature about reading, it's kind of real multifaceted kind of aspect of, uh, you know, area within itself. Um, I'm kind of reading a bit of your work, um, Professor, I kind of realise you have an interest in the role of morphology, which perhaps uh, certainly in kind of England in the kind of education system here doesn't get a massive kind of look in. We're still kind of very much phonics heavy and phonics first sort of system. So for those kind of new to the subjects, um, you know, what is morphology? Well, I I spend most of my time talking about phonics because I'm a, you know, a great believer in starting children off right with the basic tools to learn to read. But morphology is actually my favorite topic. Um, and so I, I'm honored to get the chance to talk about morphology on the podcast. So morphology or morphemes are are just simply units of meaning. So it's a it's a very a very easy concept to understand in something like Chinese. So in Chinese, a morpheme usually corresponds to a character. So if we take the Chinese word for vase, that corresponds to the characters for flower and bottle. So flower bottle is vase. Now in English, a morpheme can be a stem or an affix. And affixes are prefixes and suffixes. And these are sometimes single letters, such as uh, the S to make a plural, or they can be groups of letters. Even though we are very focused on phonics when we think about teaching children to read, if we look at the whole of the English vocabulary, about 80% of our words are built by combining morphemes. So you can start with a stem like trust, and we can add prefixes and suffixes to that to make a whole raft of new words, distrust, mistrust, trusty, untrustworthy, or we can even combine two stems to make a compound word. So I, I looked this up before the, uh, the podcast to see if I could find one, and we've got the word trust buster, which is a, a US term used for a Department of Justice official that prosecutes trust under antitrust laws. So the important thing about morphology is that it allows us to express and understand almost a limitless range of concepts with a finite number of units. And this becomes apparent even in books for children. So one of the things we're doing in my lab at the moment is we're building a corpus of children's books suitable for ages seven to 16 so that we can understand what sort of, what sort of language are children exposed to when they read. And when we've looked at this corpus, you know, even in the earliest age band, we get words like unmysterious, unconsuming, rhapsodical. Right? So these are words that children may never have seen before, but if they know something about morphology, they might be able to infer a meaning based on the understanding of how the, that morphology works, how those parts group together. 
And this analysis of morphology, it becomes increasingly automated and even unconscious as we develop reading skill. So when we look at skilled adult readers, what we find is that they're breaking words into their morphemes almost, well, not almost, but at a subconscious level within about a fifth of a second. And you can see that that's a major factor in reading efficiency. So here we have a structural property of the language or the writing system, allowing you to access the content rich parts of those words incredibly quickly. So that's, that's what morphology is. And certainly as we develop reading skill, that's why it's important. So you started to talk there a little about the impact that morphology does have on the English writing system. I wonder whether you'd be mm -hmm. so kind as to explore that um, a little further because the impact on the writing system is really fascinating and profound. I think morphology is important in a couple of ways. Uh, the first I've already alluded to is that morphology has a very powerful influence on the distribution of words in the language. So the vast majority of our words are built by combining different morphemes. And that means that there'll be many words in the language that you may never have seen or heard, but you could make a decent stab at the meaning. One of the things I love about morphology is it's so productive. You know, So one of the great, uh, the great orators of morphology was uh, former US President George Bush. And so if you remember, he used to make up new words all the time. So one of his most famous uh, new words was, he said, you've misunderestimated me. And of course, misunderestimated isn't a word, but we all know what it is because we can all, we, we understand the morphology. So we, we know what he means. And it turns out that this property of morphology is very important in terms of the learning load that a child faces. So if we go back to the example of trust, I can give you examples, trust, distrust, mistrust, trusty, untrusting. Now that's five different words, but if you know something about morphology, it's only one word. They're versions of the same word, right? And so if you think about, uh, you know, how do we become an expert user of English? And we know that by the time that children are about 20 years old, they can recognize around 70,000 printed words. But if you know something about morphology, those are built from around 11,000 stems, right? So morphology in English, it increases your capacity to understand words by about seven times. So that's one way that, that morphology has a very important impact on the writing system. The other way is a little bit more subtle. So I wanna take you back to earlier episodes of this podcast. And I think there was an episode where Neil was talking about orthographic depth. And the fact that you know English is you know, pretty chaotic, right? English doesn't have a great relationship between spelling and sound. You know, something like Serbian, you, know, you have a one-to-one -one mapping between letters and sounds. But in English, not always, always the case. And over the years, people have called it crazy, illogical, dysfunctional. And for 500 years, people have talked about reforming the spelling so that English becomes closer to its sound, right? And this is one of the things that makes English so hard to learn. So what many people fail to recognize is that much of the chaos in the English spelling sound relationship is the result of morphology in the spelling. So take the words, three words, busted, snored, and kicked. So these words all end in ed, but they end in three different sounds, ed, d, and t. So this is terrible as a, as a 
an example of the spelling sound mapping, right? So here we have a spelling and it has three different pronunciations. So perfect example of the chaos of English spelling. But that ED says something very important about those words. It says that they're in the past. And you can think about what this means for a reader. When they come to these words, immediately they can see these words are in the past. Now that information isn't in the spoken form. It's only in the spelling. And it's in the spelling because we've traded off spelling sound transparency to have that meaningful cue. And it actually goes further than this because there are words that could be spelled ED, but in order to preserve that meaningful cue, they're spelled in a different way. So we can think about something like horrid, why is it spelled with an ID instead of an ED? Because it's not in the past. And why do we spell a word like strict without an ED? It could be S-T-R-I-C-K-E-D, but that would seem like it's in the past. So we don't spell it that way. And this makes it very hard for children to learn to spell in English, right? Because they've got to learn all these different spellings. But when you come to it, you see that this is functional. This disorder is functional. And it means that our spelling can have very meaningful cues that readers can then take advantage of. And it turns out that this is all over the writing system. English trades spelling sound transparency for greater visibility of morphological information. And that turns out to be very important for skilled reading. So I, I alluded to the fact that, that skilled readers subconsciously, incredibly rapidly, can break words apart on the basis of their morphemes. And it's this structural property within the orthography that enables that. And I think that this trade-off has been really poorly recognized for many decades. So if we go back to the attempts at spelling reform, one of my favorite examples of this was the former US President Theodore Roosevelt, who decreed by executive order in around 1906 that certain words would be spelled more simply. And one of the examples that he gives is that we need to spell the verbs blessed, kissed, and passed, like I passed him in the corridor, with st so we shouldn't use ed we should use st so b-l-e-s-t k-i-s-t p-i-s-t so you can see immediately we've lost the information right so if we'd made that those spellings more transparent simpler to learn to read then we wouldn't have had or retained that meaningful information so that's a sense of the different ways that morphology becomes very important in the english writing system that's yeah, a, a wonderful um, explanation. And I, I love this idea. And I think this is reflected in your brilliant um, mid-career prize lecture talk, which is available on um, rassellab.com and in other places. There's this sense of you kind of almost rehabilitating the reputation of the English writing system and saying that some of these things that are just described as chaotic are in fact purposeful. You know, they may be um, adaptive mm. when it comes to the way that the writing system is used. Yeah, I mean, let's not get carried away. I mean, English is crazy in some respects, yeah. <laughs> but actually we shouldn't go overboard. A lot of the craziness is the, the sort of, we call it the fractionalization of English spelling. Having many, many different spellings for the same sound enables us to reserve certain spellings for certain meanings. And I think, yeah, the, pa the paper that you alluded to probably is the best articulation of how that works.
yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, it's not possible to entirely rehabilitate the reputation of English orthography. <laughs> As you say, there, there is lots of disorder um, that is, you know, just um, hi historically idiosyncratic. I don't oh. necessarily remember uh, my teachers or my parents necessarily teaching me like explicit morphology so would I be right in thinking that there's probably an element of perhaps some statistical learning when you have a when you got some phonic knowledge you can start decoding the text would I be right in thinking that this learning about morphemes and how they act can kind of come through some sort of statistical learning process through kind of experience with text or am I going down completely the wrong path there no, d definitely. We, we've done a lot of work looking at morphological knowledge in skilled readers. And I think it's very unusual for children to receive explicit morphological instruction. And there's been some studies of, for example, teacher knowledge of morphology, and the teacher knowledge is pretty patchy and, and sporadic. So children aren't getting morphological instruction. And yet when we look at adult skilled readers, they're very sensitive to even very nuanced forms of systematicity in the morphology. So if we take, um, you know, one of the things that's often surprising to people is the ending O-U-S. So you can spell us, you can spell it O-U-S, you can spell it U-S as in bonus, I-C-E, service. If it's spelled O-U-S, it has to be an adjective, right? That's it. It's, it's almost perfect. It must be an adjective. And if it's, if, if it's not an adjective, it has to be spelled another way. And so if you give people non-words to read in sentences and track their eyes, and you use O-U-S in a context that's not an adjective, people slow down, right? So they, they're aware that that is not right in that context, right? So that's an example of a way that a skilled reader would be sensitive to morphology. And what we find is that skilled reader sensitivity to morphology is graded. So the extent to which a morpheme conveys a particular meaning reliably, then those will be the best learned and we'll be able to see that in the skilled processing. Now there's no way that that sort of came from instruction. That comes over the long, the long period of reading acquisition as adults read over many years, more and more text. And one piece of evidence that we have that that comes from extended text reading is that the better speller a person is, the more sensitive to, that they are to morphology when they get to be a literate adult. So yeah, I think it's certainly the case that much of this knowledge in skilled readers comes through you know, the process of learning, uh, of, of reading text. And I think, well, we, we might get to some questions about instruction later, where instruction could make a difference, um, you know, probably the jury is still out, but certainly a much of this comes through statistical learning. Is there any research out there to suggest that, uh, you know, morphology has potential value in early reading instruction? Well, I think the word early makes this a tricky question. So, you know, as I said at the very beginning, I, I usually spend my time talking about phonics. And that's the, because the research you know, there's just a very, very strong consensus that early reading instruction should be focused on the relationship between letters and sounds. And that, you know, in that, that first three years of reading instruction, learning to decode words fluently through phonics is the most important thing. 
Now, there have been some arguments in recent years that morphology is so important in the writing system that morphological instruction should be prioritized from the very first stages of reading instruction, you know, at, in, in a sense, at the expense of phonics. However, the evidence for that claim is very weak, um, certainly in early reading instruction. And one reason for that is that when we look at the books that children are exposed to in the first years of learning to read, actually they've got very little morphology in them. So we did an analysis of, of some of these books and we found that they typically comprise short stems, you know, something like jump, for which morphology instruction is completely irrelevant. What you need is phonics to decode jump. Sometimes these words will have a single stem uh, plus a past tense affix, for example, like, like jumped. Um, but typically, you don't get derivational morphology within um, early readers. So that's one argument why morphology instruction within early, the first years of reading, uh, may not be, you know, a particular use of limited instructional time. Now, as I've said, as readers progress into independent reading, morphology becomes increasingly important uh, for all the reasons that I've mentioned, for the ability to, to understand the meanings of new words, to, to break words down quickly, to access the meanings efficiently. Um, so morphology certainly becomes important in the later years of primary school, and as children get to adolescence, we start to see this sort of very rapid, unconscious morphological segmentation. But of course, that's 10 years from the point at which children have learned, started to learn to read. I wonder then, um, and I appreciate that, as you say, the research into the very earliest reading instruction and perhaps the instruction that takes place in the later primary years, so year three, four, five, six, et cetera, when it comes to morphology is relatively limited. That be, with that caveat in mind, do you have any thoughts on how teachers might engage pupils in learning about morphemes and their use in the classroom? Yeah, I think we need to be a little bit careful about presuming that pupils require morphological instruction. And I, you know, I'm aware that you know, any kind of instruction that a, that a teacher puts on in the classroom, you know, of course, it displaces other instruction because there's limited instructional time. And as I said, to Neil, the research certainly suggests that readers pick up on this, the, the morphological relationships in the writing system over the long course of reading acquisition without explicit instruction. And in a way, that's the point of phonics, right? The, the point of phonics is to give children the tools that they need to begin to read independently so that they can start to use statistical learning mechanisms to pick up on all those nuanced properties of the writing system, such as morphology. So I guess my first advice to teachers about how you might encourage pupils to learn about morphology is to make sure that they have the tools for reading and to make sure that they read a lot. Now, beyond that, I think that there are important research questions about whether explicit morphological instruction might add value to children's reading. But the research base really just isn't there yet to make a recommendation on this. And there's a few complicating factors. The first is that we don't have any idea really when in a child's reading journey, morphology instruction would be most valuable. And I think in order to understand that, we'd need to know more about the, the morphemes that children are exposed to in books and at what point in their reading journey they are exposed to those books, th those morphemes. 
The second complicating factor is that morphemes vary really wildly in the consistency which with they convey information. So we've talked about the past tense inflection ed. Now that is a fabulous affix, right? It's so informative, it virtually always conveys information about the past. But other morphemes, not so much. So if we think about something like adj, the FX adj, we have something like parsonage, which would be a place. We've got corkage, a cost, breakage, a process, spoilage, an outcome, right? So what is it that adj does, right? How, what would you tell someone about adj? So there's also a question about if we did provide morphology instruction, what would we provide it on? Which morphemes? And I think the the final point is that providing morphological instruction requires fairly specialist knowledge. So there was a really interesting trial published uh, in the last couple of years about a method called structured word inquiry. And that's a method that really emphasizes morphology from the very beginning of reading instruction, although this trial was for older children. And one of the most important points that came out of that trial was that the teaching assistants who had been trained to deliver the program found it incredibly difficult to do so, and hence the intervention probably had low fidelity. And so I think that that really raises questions about the extent to which uh, morphology instruction could be rolled out at scale. So I guess that's kind of a long-winded answer. My, my advice would be at this point, in the absence of further research evidence, that teachers should refer to the spelling appendix in the National Curriculum for English Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2. That's, um, that actually has a very, very good basic delineation of the most important morphemes and how they, how they form words. And as I said at the very beginning, make sure that your students have the tools for reading and that they read a lot. Uh, a question I've got, and this, I appreciate this is something about which currently there is no research, and I'm just interested on your kind of impressions on it. Mm. Lots of um, phonics programs and spelling programs kind of down the line that come after like the initial stages of phonics will teach pupils to uh, break words into syllables in order to support either the spelling or the reading of those words. And in some cases, um, that uh, syllabication or syllabification, I've heard it said in both ways, in some cases, that um, process take, uh, seems to align or attempt to align with uh, morphemic boundaries within words. And in some cases, the kind of heuristic provided doesn't pay attention to that at all. And so you end up seeing words broken into morphemes in a way that just you know doesn't pay attention to, uh, sorry, words broken into syllables, I should say, in a way that doesn't pay attention to morphemes at all. Do you have any, like, in, like inclination on what would be kind of more might be more sensible admittedly in the absence of kind of robust evidence on the subject well it just doesn't make any sense to teach children to read in english by breaking words into syllables all right we don't have a syllabic writing system so the the point of early reading instruction is to give children the tools to make sense of the writing system it, you know in effect teaching them explicitly how the writing system works. And that's why we use phonics, because we have an alphabetic writing system. We have an alphabet, right? So we have visual symbols that stand for sounds. And that's what that's the point of phonics, is to, to unpick how that works. 
Now, English could never survive with a syllabic writing system because there are thousands of syllables. We could never, the learning load would be far too high to learn uh, learn all the syllables. So that that doesn't really make sense to divide words into syllables and learn to read that way. And I think, Chris, you raise a really interesting point about that the way that that starts to conflict with morphology. And I have seen attempts at reading instruction that, you know, say they they want to take teach the affix er. So we have builder, teacher, um, swimmer, jumper, and then we have corner. No, corner, corner is not someone who corns. Like er er is nothing in corner, right? So we don't we don't want to just group corner with all the rest of these. You know, we er is a is a is a frequent chunk, but we don't want to teach corner as as something that's morphological or that's something that's meaningful. So I think that that's just an example of of the way that morphology requires quite a lot of specialist knowledge. That you know, it's not just it's not just words that share a, a certain number of letters um, that that makes them meaningful, right? You you actually have to unpick whether those letters are meaningful in that particular word, and and. And in the case of morphology, usually that is the case. For all of you, Kofi, Kofi, Kofufu, however you pronounce it, you damn lovely supporters. It's a song going out to you, to you. Stephanie Taylor, Mrs. B. S. Atea, Adam, Katie, Liv, Dempsey, Becca, Jenford, Susie, Brown, and Sio, Nechio, Rachel, I am out, Jessica, Tom, Oakley, Tom, Brassington, Jessica, Tom, Oakley, Tom, Brassington, LJ, and last but not least, my lovely little Amy Bill, so they help us pay the bills, so. A massive thank you out to Dappy family. Coffee supporters help us keeping it at free. There's far more content coming just round the bend. Thank you all for helping our very special friends. I think when it comes to syllabification, um, I, 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 the, what I'm kind of referring to there is uh, not necessarily programs or ways of teaching reading that insist upon like that's a, a coherent unit more about you know if a kid comes across a word like um, uncontagious and if they try to sound that out as one whole uh, one whole word which is obviously an advisable right. thing to do without any kind of breaks in the word by the time they get to the s at the end working memory constraints mean they've forgotten the bits at the start and sometimes one way to kind of look at that is to say well let's break it into un con i don't know tay and just and kind of take that a piece at a time so kind of that's um i think that's what mm. i was referring to with regards to syllabification okay. that is more of a of a morphological parsing so if you have a word like uncontagious and you say okay well let's take off the un Right, well, un is a meaningful unit, and that, that that's a fine way to read uncontagious. But you shouldn't really have a situation in which a child's reading a word like uncontagious, where they haven't mastered the basics of phonics, 
So they're still struggling over every sound because you're absolutely right. By the, by the time you get to the end, you forget what the beginning was, right? Absolutely. And often it does come down to kind of making sure that there's genuine mastery of uh, one, you know, an ability of that ability to um, decode relatively short words before, you know, running away with words like uncontagious. And there is sometimes, I think, a tendency to assume that, ah, well, the pupils passed the phonics screening check. Um, their decoding capabilities seem to be roughly where we want them to be. So now they're ready for anything, you know, and, you know, mm. I, I like to think that in general, quite often instruction can be more new, can be more nuanced than that. And I think it, it, it also just, you know, again, it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, which, which morphemes do you, do you teach? I mean, un is a great morpheme, right? It, it's very consistent in what it means, but that's just not the case for all of them. And one of my favorite examples is, Ist. So ist, if you have cyclist, racist, nudist, you know, they're all agents, right? But if you actually unpick those, a cyclist is someone who cycles, a typist is someone who types, a racist is someone who races. Oh, no, that's not right. You know, a racist isn't someone who races, right? And a nudist isn't someone who nudes. And of course, then we have a sadist, which has nothing to do with sad, right? So I think, you know, this is just an example of the specialist knowledge that you'd need to really make sense of a strategy where you're breaking words into pieces. Uh, because if you if you don't have that specialist knowledge, then you start to get into trouble, like with sadist, right? Because it's not it's not a person who is sad. So that's a really interesting point, because I've kind of become recent. I've, my partner really doesn't enjoy this aspect about me is that I've become obsessed with trying to like find the answer to this problem of like, which are the high utility more themes that we should come across. And again, going off the the question. So if you're not, not aware, no problem at all. But um, I think one of the, my like favorite papers that I've come across quite um, you know, relatively recently um, is one by Holly B. Lane, which is morpheme frequency and academic words, identifying high utility morphemes for, mm. for instruction. Are you, are you mm. familiar with that particular? I think it's a it's a great point, actually. And, and it's we've got a project at the moment where we're looking at this corpus of children's books and trying to figure out where do morphemes occur, with what frequency, at what ages, but also with what consistency, right? Mm. So can we devise some way to quantify how consistent is un, right, in, in the meaning it conveys? How consistent is ER, right? So ER is usually a, an agent, but can also be a comparative. But you also have corner, right, which is nothing. And so, you know, that that's also an aspect of utility. It's not just how frequently it, it occurs. It's about how frequently occurs and how robust or how consistently it transforms the meaning, right? So that's where you know, these affixes like adj, you know, it's, it's, it's not a great affix. Hmm. And even something like man, which is, it's another one of my favorite examples that, you know, man, you know, it's, it's, it's an agent, right? So you've got a snowman, you've got fireman, you know, a snowman is a man made of snow. A milkman's not a man made of milk. A fireman is not a man of fire, right? Um, so all of these things are, are men of sorts, but they really vary in, in how the man transforms the meaning, right? So these are some of the, you know, if you're a psycholinguist who, who studies morphology, you get to spend your days just thinking about the way that these morphemes transform the meanings of whole words, um, you know? So you have all these anecdotes about snowmen and firemen in your brain. I guess from this, one bit of advice that one might give to teachers on this subject is that 
where you do decide to make explicit your implicit understanding of morphology, be it un or man or age, that words like sometimes are probably really helpful. So saying things like, oh, in some mm. words, this does this is mm. probably a helpful yeah. thing to do compared to saying mm. this is what this morpheme does. So personally, mm. I wouldn't yeah. want to um, suggest to teachers that if they have this kind of understanding of uh, meaning of chunks of words, be it tracked or un or er, etc., that they shouldn't attempt to share that with their pupils, but they might need to mm. read really carefully and use be, use words like sometimes. Yeah, and that's why I think that the English spelling appendix of the national curriculum is actually a pretty good document because it goes through the most important affixes. It it says what they do, what what's the function of that affix, and then it gives lots of examples of how that affix is used. And in the case of some of the more difficult affixes where there's spelling alterations, it, it, it actually gives the rule about, about how that how that comes to be. So if teachers haven't looked at that, and if they're interested in morphology, I think that that's a really good starting point as far as instruction goes. I think my kind of first experience um, with your kind of writing was in kind of like the epic paper um, ending the reading wars that kind of you know, explains a wide variety of you know complex ideas in a crazily accessible way for you know everyone at any point whether they could be a you know, complete novice to you know someone like Chris and you know who recommends that paper I think on every other podcast I was just really wondering you know um you know there are many authors on that paper how, how did it come about why did you all decide you know you know we need to like, do write this paper because you know was there that sense that the English speaking hence reading world needed it or you know love to find out the history about it yeah well um this was a long paper written in collaboration with my friends and colleagues Anne Castles and Kate Nation and I think that all of us about 10 years ago started to really grapple with why we have this vast body of knowledge on how children learn to read and why that was having so little impact in what was happening in classrooms around the world. So this is one of the most well-documented areas in the whole of the psychological science. We've known for decades how children learn to read and how they could best be taught, and it was having almost no impact. And as, as reading scientists, what we were seeing was that instead, you know, we were seeing examples where, you know, for example, whole countries were engaging in really hard to understand practices like teaching children to guess from pictures or to guess from the first letter. You know, and as a reading scientist, that just makes no sense because we've known for decades uh, that, that, you know, that, that there's a broad consensus around phonics and the reason that we use phonics to help children to understand the alphabet. So I started to try to understand what was going on. Uh, and I started that journey by starting to come to research ed meetings. And I'm not a teacher, so I'd sort of, you know, sneak into these meetings and pay my five pounds. And I'd sort of lurk in the corner, just listening and trying to understand, you know, trying to understand what was going on. And those meetings were a real eye-opener for me because I discovered that there's, you know, just aspects of, you know, very basic concepts in how children learn to read that I just had assumed were shared knowledge that of course every teacher would have learned this in teacher training but that just wasn't the case and then and I, I consider it one of the the 
the most important points of my career, Tom Bennett gave me the opportunity to talk at the 2015 National Conference of Research Ed. And I gave a very basic talk about what a writing system is and how that links to why we use phonics to teach children to read. And several teachers came up to me afterward and just said how, how they loved, loved the talk. And one came up and she said it was an epiphany for her because nobody had ever explained that to her. So back to the paper, we wanted to write the definitive paper on what we know about the science of how we read in a way that teachers and teacher leaders could understand. You know, people say the paper is really elegant and you know that it that it it tells a story that couldn't be told in any other way, but it was so hard to write uh, because this literature is vast. Um, I think in the paper, there's 300, 350 references, and it's just not straightforward, you know, how you put it together because reading is so complex and multifaceted. But certainly those early experiences, and we were all having these sorts of experiences of talking to teachers, listening, really helped us to shape how we told that story. And it told us where we needed to address certain arguments head on. So for example, one argument is that, you know, and it's a total straw man. Phonics isn't all there is to reading. Of course it's not. And that's the reason why that paper, two thirds of it is not about phonics, right? It's about learning to read fluently, orthographic mapping and reading comprehension. And, and so I, I, I would say that, you know, for some reason that paper cut through all the heat, you know, and, and people were able to read it and, and, and dispense with all what we call the reading wars. And I think it's because we had all had these years of experiences just listening to teachers. So we could anticipate, you know, where the challenges were, what the arguments were. And I, I should say that, you know, none of us ever expected that that paper would have the impact that it's had. I mean, you know, that paper is now driving change at different levels all over the world. And I think for me, it's been especially gratifying to see um, teachers like Chris basically retelling that story again through his own book, but weaving in his expert knowledge of how he embeds that research evidence in his own practice. And I think that's been another reason why that paper has been so important because, you know, people who could add value to the science, you know, either, you know, for example, like Chris talking about how, how, he, how he realizes that evidence in practice or people like Emily Hanford, who's a journal in the USA, being able to talk about that research evidence in the context of the US literacy crisis you know, that's amplified the impact of that paper. And it's been, you know, it's been very, very gratifying for us. And it's wonderful to hear you describe it in those terms, not least because one of my main sticking points when I was deciding whether or not to write a book was trying to work out whether I'd just be better placed pointing people towards ending the reading wars. Instead, I still mm -hmm. do that. Don't get me wrong. I still often say, and if you want to find out more, go there. But at the same time, that's, uh, I, I think as well, that sense that you're absolutely right. What comes across from that paper is that you've listened to teachers or you've got a sense of the audience with whom you're um, or part of the audience with whom you're communicating there, because mm -hmm. as we've said before, it is as accessible as it is nuanced. So yeah, whatever you set out to mm -hmm. do with that, you certainly hit the mark. I guess mm -hmm. just a final- Thank you. Oh, no, no worries. It's uh, but and yeah, and well, no, thank you on behalf of the profession. I guess just a final thing to ask then is if people are interested in your research and they should be and your writing more generally, uh, where might they go to find out more? 
Well, people could go to my website, which is rastellab.com. Um, and I have all my papers freely available, open access on that, on that, uh, that channel. I've also got lots of spoken presentations on that website, um, including a recent talk uh, that I gave for the Talks at Google series. So this is on the Google YouTube channel. And you could actually just um, search for my name and it's the first video that comes up. So I'm quite proud of that talk. It's pretty general um, and it's about how children learn to read. So those are two things. And I, I guess papers about morphology in particular, there's two papers from 2019 the most important probably of which is that prize lecture paper that you referred to, Chris, and that's available on my website as well. And finally, I always love it when people email me and I always respond um, and, and can send papers or send advice or thoughts. So, you know, feel free to get in touch. Academics are, are really easy to find um, and we're always on email. I will no doubt be emailing you at some point <laughs> to say, uh, ask for access to a paper or just to um, find out more of your mm. thoughts. It has been a, a real pleasure and such a privilege to have you on the podcast. If I might add one more place that people might um, see your brilliant work, it's uh, perhaps a little bit less accessible, but for those who are really into the uh, into morphology and your writing on it, um, the Science of Reading Handbook, second edition, your chapter on morphology in there mm -hmm. is um, a fascinating read. It's quite an expensive thing to buy, mm -hmm. the, the book itself, but... Um, for those who are interested in the subject, it, it does seem to be very worth it. If people want to read that chapter and email me, I probably would email it to them. Wow. Well, that is, uh, on, and on that bombshell, as it were, thank, I just <laughs> say um, a huge thank you for your time, uh, your expertise, and for your work in how it supports us in the teaching profession. It's, it's really been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much. So there it is. I hope you have enjoyed season six. I hope you enjoy the podcast in general. Like I said at the start, if you've got two minutes, leave a review, help others find the podcast wherever you listen. All that's left to do is say a massive thank you to all of my guests across this season and in fact across every episode of Tadape. And until next time, thanks for listening.